you've, you've heard us announce this, uh, one of our ruling elders here at the church, Billy King, uh, is going to take the next probably five weeks and walk us through a sort of biblical theology of evangelism. Uh, now, one of the things that might have run through your mind when you've heard us announce this is, okay, so that's for people who have the gift of evangelism. Uh, I'm going to do something else. Maybe not because you're here, uh, but you can help us get the word out to those who aren't. Evangelism is the responsibility, it's the calling of every single Christian in the world, in the church, in the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean, I want to be clear here, I want you to hear this, that doesn't mean every single Christian is called to do exactly the same thing. Uh, evangelism has many facets, but all of us are to be involved in it. So I'm excited that we've got Billy uh, here ready to teach. Uh, there's, uh, we, we've not been a church historically that has had kind of themes each year where our ministry each year is going to be focused on one thing. Uh, but this is the closest we've come to that. We're going to go from this five-week series right into a, uh, I think it's a nine-week series where we're going to walk through in Sunday school the Christianity Explored curriculum that we're going to use for evangelism. That uh, is just one method, uh, but one that we're especially excited about. Uh, and then in January, we're going to train those who are ready to be leaders, would like to be leaders in that, uh, that um, curriculum, Christianity Explored. And then, pretty quickly, uh, is the first uh, in February or January? January. So, uh, pretty quickly, we're going to roll right into our first uh, weekly uh, course, Christianity Explored, where we invite uh, our unbelieving friends to come be a part of that. And he's going to tell you all more about that, but what I want you to understand is that this is the beginning of a, uh, a nearly 12-month emphasis on this in the life of our church, and we're incredibly excited about it. And so I'm thankful that, that Billy is gifted in this, uh, that he's been sent to us by the Lord, both to serve as a ruling elder and to lead us in, uh, in really shoring up what I think in the life of our congregation has been a weakness since we planted. And so, Billy, go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. As Matt indicated, we have several important events coming up. This is really uh, the beginning of, of these events, and I thought I would need an object lesson today. Um, Vince Lombardi is uh, famous for having begun preseason practice for his professional teams by standing in front of them and saying, and holding a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, you would expect professional football players would not need to know that. But he was famous for teaching the basics, the basics of football. He believed that uh, you won games, you won championships by uh, giving attention to the basics. Well, what I'm going to do over the next four, probably five Sundays is teach the basics of evangelism, the very principles of evangelism. Uh, uh, before I begin, uh, actually, the, and, and just kind of highlights of the, the four main topics, today we're going to cover the, the biblical mandate to, to evangelize. Uh, next week, we'll dig into a biblical foundation for evangelism. And next week, I'll be teaching you what was the most important thing that I needed to learn about evangelism 20 years ago when I began this journey. I seem to have waked up one day and realized, you're not really doing evangelism. What are you doing? You're trading a few sound bites with people, but you're not really having 
any meaningful conversation with people regarding the gospel. But, and so next week is going to be one of those uh, uh, pivotal events in my life where I went from kind of a love-hate relationship with evangelism or maybe a love-frustration with evangelism to a love-freedom in evangelism. So it's going, there's some important biblical principles regarding evangelism that I needed to know. Uh, the third uh, topic will be uh, the biblical gospel. What is the biblical gospel? And uh, the fourth topic, some practical ideas about engaging others uh, with uh, the gospel. So that's, uh, that's what uh, we're going to be about in terms of uh, taking a look at the biblical basics uh, of what evangelism uh, is about. Um, Twenty years ago, the last thing I could imagine myself doing would be teaching evangelism. I mean, this would be preposterous. Uh, if you roll back the clock to around 2003 or 2004, uh, because I was not uh, very successful with it, I wanted to be a witness. Uh, I didn't really know a lot about what that meant. Uh, but in that period of time where I was sort of waking up, uh, I, uh, I, I began a journey. And, that, and when I think back upon that journey, I was really repenting. It was a really a long process of repenting from being inactive, inattentive in evangelism to becoming active, to going through that learning curve, that learning process. And so today it's a 20-year learning process, and I'm still not done with that learning process. Uh, But over the the course of that time, the Lord led me one step at a time. Uh, and And if you're like many, when you hear the word evangelism, it just strikes fear in your heart. Uh, think of it as one, one, as a journey that is one small step at a time. Uh, it is something that God uh, enables all of us, all of us to do. So there's just a little brief introduction, but I want to I want to begin by asking the the question: uh, What is evangelism, and what is the church? What what priority should evangelism have for the church? So. Give me your thoughts about evangelism. Even what you, how you react when you hear the word evangelism. Uh, what, what, is that, uh, what does that make you think about? What does it make you, make you feel? I'm very comfortable with silence. I can wait until you have something to say. Yes, Marcia. Yeah. Yeah, especially those of us who were around in the 60s and 70s, the Billy Graham Crusades, we think of events, don't we? Yeah. What else? Good. That's that's good. Right. Who else? 
This side of the room is winning right now. There's not, it's two to nothing, two to zero over here. If you scratch, you get called on, so be careful. <laughs> Craig. Yeah. All right, now tell me, what are, what are some questions you would like to see addressed in, in this four to five week uh, series that, that, we're gonna, that we're having? Any big questions? Yes, Joseph. Okay. Anything else? Other questions you would or issues you would like to see addressed? Yes, Robert. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And my favorite evangelist, uh, whom will be preaching on a Sunday evening, uh, September the 3rd, a Labor Day weekend, Rico Tice, refers to that as crossing the pain line. You know, we can talk to non-believers, neighbors, friends, associates about anything other than the gospel uh, without being too painful. We've talked to them about sports, about the weather, maybe not politics these days, uh, but there are a lot of different topics that we can discuss, but when we move into the area of the gospel, it can be somewhat difficult. I have three books that I want to recommend to you, um, and they are all on our book table. And um, here's my other one. They are my three favorite books that address um, that address kind of the fundamentals of evangelism I would encourage you to um, get a copy of all three of these there are others that are great on evangelism but these these tend to address the fundamentals the first is honest evangelism by Rico Tice many of you have read this I love his opening statement uh, in the first chapter or well, maybe it's in Maybe it's in, uh, uh, well, it's somewhere in the beginning. He says, I find evangelism difficult. I find it hard. Well, that sets me at ease, uh, if you will. I, I do have some books that talk about uh, sharing your faith without fear. Uh, as one writer and friend of mine has said, he puts books like that in the fiction section of his library. Uh, uh, because now that's a really good book actually but uh, the title puts me off I'm surprised I bought it even uh, the other is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God with J.I. Packer uh, it's a must have it addresses the issues uh, from a very theological perspective but also some very practical aspects uh, to it uh, he, he, uh, he, I won't read anything out of that although there's some great uh, great uh, quotes and sound bites in there and the other is tell the truth by will metzger this is the fourth edition of it it was first written and published in probably the 1980s uh, so it's uh, had enduring value i bought the i picked up the third edition around 2006 or 7 or 8 somewhere along in there uh, it has uh, 
you know, it, it, it impacted how I think about evangelism and how I think about the gospel and what it means to share the, the whole gospel. He uses that phrase, the whole gospel, uh, quite often in here. He, most of his chapter 4 is devoted uh, to, that, uh, to that topic. So there's some uh, preliminaries. I would encourage you to get all three of those books and go through them. I think you'll find them encouraging uh, and inspiring uh, and not guilt-inducing. Uh, now, guilt has its role. Uh, uh, it does. I mean, we are going to be held accountable uh, for whether we've been obedient to Christ's commands. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we all need encouragement in this, in this area. And I think that's why God gave uh, this charge to evangelize to his people. Evangelism really is a team sport. We need each other uh, as a team to be encouraged because if you're doing evangelism for any length of time, you'll know it can be discouraging at times, but it can be one of the most joyful things uh, that uh, any of us can ever, can ever do. Hey, Billy. Yes. I just wanted to point out two of those three books uh, are on the book table right now. They're part of the, the book table lineup. So you can grab those Great. on the way out today if you'd like. Yes, please, uh, please take advantage uh, of that. These are uh, important works, uh, if you will, uh, in, ter- in the area of evangelism. Now, there are a lot of other good books as well, but these are, uh, are books that really address the fundamentals. I know this is hard to read and hard to see from the back. What I want to do, and over the last 20 years, three questions evolved in my mind that I had to have an answer for. One was, what is the biblical gospel? Uh, two, what is a biblical foundation for evangelism? And three, what is the biblical priority for evangelism for God's people? Uh, and uh, I, found, I found it difficult to get really good biblical answers to all three of those, quite frankly. And so I began a search uh, uh, 20 years ago. And uh, the first part of that search led me to London uh, and to the course Christianity Explored, which we're going to be leading and doing here at this church. Uh, We as a group in Sunday school will go through the course so you can see what it's about and how how great of a quality that it is. But today I'm going to address primarily the, uh, the what is the biblical priority for evangelism uh, for God's people. Uh, there are three passages of Scripture that are fairly well known as fitting into the, the heading that we call the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is uh, the one that comes to mind most often. Uh, but Luke 24, 46 to 49 is also a similar charge or a similar commissioning uh, by Jesus of his disciples. And also in Acts 1, verses 7 through 8, we have another it's a little bit more abbreviated of a charge that, uh, that, that we see. And before, I'm going to read all three of these, and we're going to talk about uh, the, the distinctives of each three. All, all three have something very distinct about them that's uh, important and gives us kind of a triple affirmation of this charge. Um, but also, I put, you, see, you see a timeline down at the bottom. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, on my timeline, uh, but 
what's significant about it is that this, char- you know, this charge wasn't a New Testament invention by Jesus. He didn't make it up uh, after he came to earth and saw what was going on and saw how people were responding to him. Uh, this is something that's been a charge from the beginning. Uh, and I find that highly significant in terms of answering the question of what is the biblical mandate and priority uh, for God's people. We see it first time emerge at the fall in Genesis 3.15. Uh, it's the first time that the gospel is proclaimed. You know, the scholars, you know, scholars have to have a, their own vocabulary. It's kind of like IT people. Some of you are IT people. You have your own uh, vocabulary and initials and so forth that I don't have a clue most of the time when you use them. Uh, scholars refer to that as a proto-evangelium. So I guess if you have something that's really important, you give it a Latin name. Uh, and that shows up in Genesis chapter 3, 5, uh, verse 15. Uh, but Abraham, we see this same, this same charge, this same motivation and uh, impulse by God in the covenant uh, with Abraham, which we're preaching on in, in Sunday mornings. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the first time that covenant is articulated, but yet it's, it's articulated five different times in Genesis uh, with you know, variations in, in wording. Ralph Davis, one of my uh, favorite authors, has a, a short book, The Faith of Our Fathers, where he deals with Genesis 12 through 25, the chapters that deal with uh, Abraham. And his chapter on, on uh, Genesis 12 is titled, For God so loved the world that he called Abraham. Uh, now think about that. It really encapsulates uh, this grand strategic purpose that God had for Abraham uh, when he called to be a blessing uh, to all of the world. In the Exodus, we see it again. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, uh, we see uh, uh, what I would think of as the major subplot of the Exodus, and that is that God's name would be known throughout the entire world. And that, that theme, that subplot, is articulated at least 11 times uh, in the Exodus account, in the book of Exodus. Uh, and I have those uh, written out here. There may be more, but I identified 11. Uh, when God is speaking to Moses in Exodus 6-7, it says, You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. That's Moses speaking. You know, God gave this statement to Moses to give to the people of Israel. Uh, then in uh, Exodus 7, 5, God is speaking to Moses. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Uh, then in seven seventeen, Moses to Pharaoh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. And then again, Moses to Pharaoh, so that you may know. Uh, again, Moses to Pharaoh, that you may know. Moses again to Pharaoh, chapter 9, so that you may know. Again, so that you may know. So 11 times... Uh, God, speaking through Moses, speaks of this great purpose of knowing God. Uh, it's a powerful, uh, powerful uh, statement of the, the meaning of the Exodus in one sense. Again, in uh, BC, uh, 700 B.C., Isaiah uh, 49.6, one of my favorite uh, all-time uh, passages. I'll, go, I'll speak about that in just a minute. And then <coughs> at... Uh, Two or three days before the cross, on Tuesday, if you can believe the harmonies of the gospel, and they seem reliable, uh, the Tuesday before Jesus dies on the cross on Friday, 
Jesus gives an epilogue to his people. He writes an epilogue for his people. Having been working on a book project, I had to learn what a preface is and what a foreword is and what an epilogue is. And so an epilogue is general. And, you know, it's been quite odd that the, some of the things that the Lord has led me into, standing in front of you teaching evangelism, I told you, is the most odd. But writing a book was also the second most odd thing he had called me to, uh, or led me to do. Uh, and I remember my uh, first composition in freshman English when I was in college. It was a one or two page little composition. I thought it's the best thing I'd ever written. And it came back with this big red F and a circle around it on that paper. So, you know, there's some odd things that the Lord leads us all uh, to do. But I learned what an epilogue is about. It's generally the author's concluding thoughts uh, and also is often used to deal with the future of the characters that uh, the writer has been writing about. Well, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus writes an epilogue for his people. Uh, and at the center of it is that you will bear witness for the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. And so that's the central purpose. And so much of Acts, uh, Mark 13 deals with uh, the imperatives uh, to be faithful, to be courageous, to avoid false teaching, uh, to be watchmen for the gospel, uh, to guard the gospel. Uh, all of it uh, surrounds this central purpose to bear witness and that the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. And then Paul, uh, in Acts chapter 13, gives us another important aspect of the Great Commission. Um, when I was studying this issue of the mandate and the Great Commission over the last many years, I was always disappointed that I couldn't find where Paul or any of the other writers of the New Testament referenced Jesus' statements in Matthew 28. Uh, that was initially a, a disappointment to me. I could never find where they would reference that. But what I discovered is that Paul has done something even better. He goes back 700 years before Jesus, and he goes to a conversation uh, between the Father uh, and the Son. And I'm going to read that to you. It's in Isaiah 49, 6. It's a pivotal uh, passage of Scripture that relates to this grand strategic purpose that God has for his people. Isaiah 49, 6. Um, okay. And he says, that's Yahweh is speaking to the Son, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Uh, several of the scholars say that that last phrase should better be translated that you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Motir and Young and uh, McKay, several of them say that the parallelism parallelism of the verse demands that it be translated that way so here is God the Father saying to the Son that you're going to be a light to the nations uh, and that you're going to be my salvation for the nations now Paul takes that passage and interprets it for us and gives us application I'm going to read his application of it in Acts 13 47 he is in this uh, in this uh, context where uh, Paul cites this passage, 
he has been to a Jewish synagogue, as he typically did, and he preached the gospel to them. Uh, they reject him and, and kick him out, basically. And so he basically is shaking the dust off his feet to some extent and says that I'm going to turn to the Gentiles now. Now, he never really fully neglected the, Jew, the Jews and the, and the synagogue, but his focus changes more directly to the Gentiles. Uh, he says, I'll begin reading in verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so, for so the Lord has commanded us. And now he cites that verse, 49.6. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So what Paul is doing, he, he's citing that as his great commission. I think it's fair to think about Isaiah 49.6 in the original as God the Father's great commission of God the Son. Uh, and I've, I've, I've thought about when did that conversation take place? And I, I don't know that that's very easily resolvable, but certainly we know that God's plan of the gospel and revealing of this plan of redemption occurred before the foundations of the earth. Maybe this occurred then, maybe it didn't, but it's, certainly we have a record of it going back 700 years. So I think it's, it's highly significant uh, what we find here. And so it gives us some of the, the rootings and the groundings of uh, this great commission charge that uh, Jesus has given to his disciples. Uh, I'll speak a little bit about the models I have. There are several models that the, uh, that the Bible gives us, gives us to portray so that we can visualize what uh, walking with Christ is. Uh, some of those models are the cross. I'm going to focus on that just a little bit. Uh, the triumphal procession in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. Uh, the wilderness exodus as analogous to the Christian walk. And also the extended metaphor of the vine in John chapter 15. Every one of those models has evangelism embedded in it. Every one of them do. Some expressly and some uh, in a very strong uh, implied way. So now, that's the overview of, of what I have up here. And I want to go back and read each of these three, um, uh, three commissions that Christ has given to the church. So we'll start with Matthew 28. Uh, Matthew 28. <clears throat> I'll begin at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Now, the distinctive about this uh, commission is that it's it's the most formal of these three. Uh, it is 
very comprehensive. The others are comprehensive as well to a, a large degree. And it's highly strategic. So it's really a formal strategic commissioning for God's people in terms of what they are to be about. As far as we are given in the text in terms of who the audience of this is, it's the 11. And there's always some debate. Did he mean that just for the, uh, the leaders of the church only? Or is this mainly for the church? Or is it for everybody? I think it applies to everyone. Uh, but I think what it, the heavy emphasis here is that this is the church's main task. Uh, it is the main task uh, external to its body. It's a task that reaches out uh, to those who don't know Christ yet. So I think that's the great emphasis with the Matthew 28 passage. Any comments or questions so far before we turn to Luke? All right, let's go to Luke 24 and read it and uh, get a flavor for what this. The audience here seems to be more than just an exclusive group of the 11. It seems to be the 11 plus other followers of Christ, other believers. Uh, definitely is given to believers, uh, but it's a larger group. Uh, beginning uh, 24, beginning in 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to under understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and, they, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So notice the distinctness with this one is that it's rooted in everything in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is telling them that all of this has been preordained, it's been written about, uh, and it's written in the language of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, he is most likely pulling from uh, Isaiah 43 uh, in the section of verses 8 through 13, where twice the, the language of witness. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah 43, 8 through 13, is this is a bit of a sarcastic charge by Isaiah from, from God to Israel for their failure uh, to represent him well, to reflect uh, God uh, well. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that Jesus borrows some language from that. And notice in verse 10 in Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Now, the context makes that a little bit of a sarcastic, biting remark because he says prior to that, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Now, in chapter 42, he defines who those people are. They're God's people <laughs> that are blind, uh, and they are deaf, and they can't see. So, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And then again, in verse 12, the, uh, the last phrase, and you are, witness, you are my witnesses, de declares the Lord, and I am God. Then again, in 44, uh, verse 8, there's another language there, and you are my witnesses. So, Jesus is drawing... Uh, from that, most likely from that passage, 
uh, as he is charging the disciples. So it's in the language of the prophets, and it is foreordained. This has been planned from long, a long time ago. So that's the distinctives of the, the Luke commission, rooted in the Old Testament, in the language of the prophets, and it has been foreordained. All right, now let's flip to Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I'll begin reading in verse 6, and notice how the disciples are still anticipating a political Messiah who will rule and reign, throw off the Roman yoke that's uh, on them. Um, so uh, Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, and uh, soon thereafter, well, let me just keep reading. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So the distinctives uh, in, in this commission, this charge, is it's Jesus' last words literally on the earth immediately followed by this he ascends into heaven uh, and it's highly dramatic uh, and thanks to uh, Todd pointing out to me two exclamation points this is a big deal <laughs> this is a big deal he dramatizes it uh, and what's fascinating here and this is one of the supports this is one of the reasons we know this applies to every individual believer, regardless of what your spiritual gift is. You could have the gift of teaching or the gift of mercy or the gift of service. Uh, whatever your gift is, uh, this, is, this charge is given to everyone who receives the Holy Spirit. We can no more restrict uh, the charge to witness than we can restrict who's going to receive the Holy Spirit. There is some debate about that. I remember 25 years ago, uh, in a Sunday school class at a church uh, a long time ago for me, but debating who was supposed to evangelize. Is it those who have the gift of evangelism? Or is it, some, is it pastors only? Um, and I didn't know the answer then. I really uh, I was uncertain about it uh, at that point. But the only time the gift of evangelism is mentioned in Scripture, it's in the context of, training others, equipping others to do the work of evangelism. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think is so important about the ministry of Rico Tice, whom you will become familiar with, is that he understands his gift of evangelism is to show you and me how we can do it, that we can do it, and to encourage us um, uh, to be actively engaged uh, in it. Okay, any questions about those three commissions and charges? I want to move next to talking about one of these models uh, of living the Christian life. And if you have your Bible, you can follow me in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. <coughs> You'll remember this is where Jesus 
invites people to take up, deny self, take up their cross, and follow him. Um, that statement or teaching like that is recorded five times in the synoptic, in the three synoptics. And th those five recordings of, uh, or accounts are spread over three separate occasions. The one I've chosen to, um, for us to examine this morning is, is also recorded by Matthew and is recorded by Luke, uh, almost identically. I didn't check how close the wording is, but it, I mean how exact it is, but it's very close. Uh, but there's another time prior to this chronologically in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 10, and then in Luke after this, and I don't remember the uh, chapter in reference for that. Um, but uh, these are important. I say that because they are, they are significant. Let me read from Mark 8, 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are several things to note in this passage that are important. First of all, who is the audience for this? Uh, just prior to this, he has been teaching his smaller group of disciples only. But at this point, he opens it up to the larger crowd. This occurs about six to 12 months prior to the cross, and it's in Caesarea Philippi. It's one of the outlying areas that Jesus traveled to. It's about 25 miles to the north, slightly east of Bethsaida. Uh, it's mostly Gentile area. And so he opens it up to a mostly Gentile crowd of people uh, full of mostly non-believers, I think we can say is, is clearly uh, implied here. And so the, you know, the significance, significance of that is that this is a gospel invitation. This is an evangelistic call uh, to the people who are uh, hanging out there listening to him. Uh, he's inviting them to be saved, basically. And then he gives an explanation of what this means. Uh, but let's first of all think about deny self, and I think, and then take up your cross. Obviously, none of us can die a redemptive death on the cross. And he's speaking metaphorically here, but I think the best way to understand this is to think purpose. Deny self-purpose. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. Take up Christ's purpose. He, he passes the mantle to us, and he did that you know, very literally in Acts 1, 7 through 8. It's reminiscent of Elijah. When you remember Elisha following around to make sure he got, received the mantle so he'd receive that power of the, of the Spirit. Um, so Jesus is passing the mantle to us. His purpose is being conveyed to us. In this, uh, in this way. So I deny self-purpose, take up Christ's purpose, and follow Christ. Doing it his way, uh, with his methods, with his words. And now he gives us some explanation. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Uh, every time I read this, I'm reminded of Charlie Daniels 
great hymn, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. I don't know why we don't sing it here, Matt. I, we're just, uh, but it's, there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, and Jesus raises that question for us. Uh, is anything more important than your soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he uh, returns in the glory of his Father. I skipped, I skipped, I'm sorry. For what can a man give? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, yes. So Jesus is linking loyalty to him to loyalty to his gospel. Uh, it's a very tight linkage there. And I think it's, uh, it's very rich with meaning uh, to us and, and for us. Um, so it's, uh, it's one of those great models. Um, and I think, it, uh, I think it's a picture, in a sense, of repentance. Too often... We think of repentance as, you know, when I sin, I confess it, and I turn away from that sin. But I think Jesus uses it here in a, in a broader sense in terms of purpose. Deny self, deny my self-purpose, and I take up his purpose. And when I reflect back on my journey of the last 20 years, it's been a journey of repentance daily. You know, Luke's version of of uh, his, his second version of the cross teaching is, you know, take up your cross daily. It's a, it's a daily process. Uh, and I think turning to Christ's purpose is part of that repentance. And I certainly haven't done it perfectly, uh, but I'm a, a lot better than I was 20 years ago. I have far more meaningful gospel conversations going on. Uh, but it's been a a very broad uh, and lengthy learning process, uh, if you will. So anyway, um, we've got about two or three or four minutes uh, that I can take any questions or issues that uh, may have come up out of, out of this. Billy? Yeah. Uh, in that last passage that you were in there, um, did would you look at verse 35? Um, I'm wondering if you meant to address verse 35 in terms of how it shows that the denying self and taking up the cross is a call to proclaim the gospel. Yes. Yes, I'll, I'll read that, verse 35. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Yes, thank you. That's where I got tangled up a minute ago. Uh, yeah, you guys don't know how terrifying it is standing in front of you. <laughs> I, I'm used to looking at the back of your heads. I'm not saying your faces are scary, but uh, it, is, it is more terrifying up here. But yeah, he, it, that's the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? It's, uh, we lose and we gain. If we try to gain through the world, we lose. Uh, and Jesus very much links it to... Uh, living for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. When I reflect back on the number of churches I've been a member of as a believer over the last too many years, uh, it's about 11 or 12. Now, most of those I moved uh, for uh, job reasons. Uh, and so uh, there have been, I've, 
prior to here and maybe two other churches I can think of, out of that 11, about three churches that really had some emphasis like this. Uh, this passage was for the most part ignored. I think it's one of the more important passages for believers. When I first started getting my head around it, I thought it was maybe one of the most important passages of Scripture for discipleship. Uh, but it, and it is, uh, no doubt about it. But it's a, an evangelistic invitation. This is Jesus inviting someone to come and be saved. Uh, so that, realizing that gives it much greater power than I ever thought was embedded in this. So this is kind of a high-level view. There are a lot of other reasons why I've come to believe that uh, this mandate applies to every single individual. Um, and we'll look at possibly some of those as we go through. But uh, I, I'm convinced that this is what we're to be about. The other thing I tried, needed to do was to understand the priority, how it related to worship. As I, as I debated those, worship seemed absolutely the most important thing we needed to be about. Um, but I didn't fully appreciate that worship and evangelism are very tightly linked. I mean, they're very similar. Uh, in worship, we're praising God for the great things he's done. Uh, we're worshiping him. Uh, we're praying. Uh, we're engaged with him. Evangelism is very similar. We're telling others about the great things he's done, particularly the great things he's done in redemption. Uh, to save them uh, from, their, from their sins. So I, I view today my view of evangelism and worship. How do they relate from a priority standpoint? I, I think they're code number ones. I think uh, John, John Stott has a great quote. He says, evangelism, worship and evangelism are twins. They are the unceasing functions of the church. Uh, and I think that's a great way uh, to put that. Other questions or comments? What else did I miss? <laughs> well, we're, I think, if this clock is right, we're right on time here to finish. Okay. It is. Your neighbors, when they see you every Sunday morning driving off while they're mowing their lawn, that's, that's a witness. Yeah, Todd. To, to piggyback on that, when you look at the first five chapters of Isaiah, it's about transformation. Yeah. We're being draped over the coals by God through the prophet Isaiah. And one of the things that he says, and this is hard, but it, it lines up perfectly with this scripture in uh, the last part of Isaiah 113. God says, I cannot endure iniquity in Solomon's house. Yeah. So you carry this rejection of the great commandment, the great commission, yeah. in here and in worship. Yeah, that's a great point. Going, no. No. He is unhappy with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't have time to cover Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the church at Ephesus. I believe they're being reprimanded for, being, for failing to witness. So that's very consistent. And just as an aside, footnote to Todd's note, I went through those first five chapters of Isaiah and cataloged the number of times that Isaiah names a sin. There's a little bit of redundancy, but it's more than 60 times. Whew, talk about a depressing uh, deal. But in, embedded in that, he's pleading to come and become, your, your, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll become as white as snow. But, uh, and that's a great example of what preaching or teaching or sharing the gospel. It's, it's about, part of it is addressing sin, our sinfulness. Okay. Oh, that's great. Uh, it absolutely is true. And I've categorized, there's many commands. We're commanded to do a lot of things. Uh, and many of them are more in the category of organic commands, uh, to live a, a moral life and uh, integrity, no, don't murder anyone, uh, no lying, all of that sort of thing. Uh, but then there's this big strategic command, <laughs> a big strategic task. It's in a it's in a category all by itself, I think. And so, anyway, good. Yeah, thanks for discussion. All right, let me, let me close this in prayer. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this task that you've given us. It gives meaning to our lives. Lord, we thank you that uh, we matter to you and our obedience matters to you. And I just pray that you would help us to overcome our fears on a daily basis and to be a confident uh, witnesses for you. I pray that you'll give us open doors for the gospel, uh, opportunities to have meaningful conversations with people who don't know you. Lord, please bless our efforts. We know that we're not strong. We're not uh, uh, particularly articulate sometimes, uh, but I, I pray that you'll bless our efforts. Help us to learn. And help us to be faithful to you, to faithfully uh, convey this tremendous gospel message of redemption that you have for us. Uh, we lift all this before you in Jesus' name. Amen.